Welcome to History Class After Hours. I'm Joseph Barron. Joining me again is Brian. Hello. We're getting upon winter break. Yes, it is. It's close. We're a week and a half away. We're almost there. Still got to take exams, though. Still got to take exams. That's easy for me, not you. I just sit there. You guys do all the hard work. So um, today's episode, we're going to talk about, I just randomly ran across this. I had actually never heard of this individual, hence the title of what this episode is going to be. Um, and the article said, the Civil War's most interesting man. And I saw that and said, this is blasphemy. Because it's not Dan Sickles. Because it's not Dan Sickles. And I started reading it, and I was like, "Okay, this guy is fairly interesting. He's no Dan Sickles." Yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna. Nobody's a Dan. Yeah, Sickles. no, there's no other Dan Sickles. I'm just gonna throw it out there. But I will say, this is probably one of the most important men of the Civil War that you've never heard of. Like his impact on the Civil War is substantial, but no one's probably ever heard of this guy. Because I mean, I never heard of this guy till yesterday. I didn't. I never heard of him until about two days ago. Because he's so everything he's doing is behind the scenes. All right. So today we are going to talk about a guy whose name is Grenville Dodge. Must be a family name. Probably. Grenville. Like when he was born, mom's like, oh, he looked like a Grenville. You look like South Carolina. <laughs> so Grenville Dodge. Uh, he will be a major, he'll get up to the rank of major general during the Civil War. Um when Sherman was talking about Dodge, that's to come to Sherman, to Ulysses S. Grant, uh, he only used a few words. Dodge is a brick, which I guess was a compliment back in the Civil War days. Strong as a brick, maybe. Reliable as a brick. I mean, I dropped a brick once and it broke, so I don't, I don't know. Well, hopefully they're not dropping him. Hopefully. Yes. Uh, many people, even in civil, civil War aficionados like myself, have never even heard of the guy like we've been talking about. Uh, even though he only fought in two battles, he's going to have a tremendous impact on the Civil War. Uh, he's going to be born in Massachusetts in 1831. His, cha- his family was constantly on the move, though, because his father was always changing jobs. When he was 14 years old, he began working on a neighborhood farm. There he would meet a man named Frederick Lander, and he had, uh, Frederick would ask... Grenville to help him survey a railroad. Odd, asking a 14-year-old with probably very limited education, especially back then, to help you do some serious engineering tasks. Yeah, probably. But anyway, uh, this skill is going to play an important role in his life, and it's going to create this lifelong passion that Grenville has for trains. Uh, Dodge would graduate from Norwich University with a degree in civil engineering and then move to Peru, Illinois. Uh, Norwich University is one of the top military colleges in the country. That's not West Point, Naval Academy, or Air Force Academy. It's in, yeah, it's in Vermont. I once had a student go there. Wow. Um, and Peru, Illinois is in central Illinois, right off the Illinois River. Been fishing there many a times. Uh, there he would be the surveyor for the Illinois Central Railroad surveying team and other various railroad companies. He's going to relocate eventually to Council Bluff, Iowa, where he is going to randomly meet Abraham Lincoln. Well, Abraham Lincoln was there campaigning to get the uh, presidential nomination. 
The two would begin talking, and they soon realized they had a dream of creating a transcontinental railroad. Dodge is going to basically jump on Lincoln's platform and going to help him win the nomination from Iowa. All for trains. Because he loves trains. Yeah. All right. So after Fort Sumter, Dodge is going to pack up and move to D.C. Um, he was sent there by the government in Iowa, state government, to basically go to the federal government and ask for weapons, uniforms, supplies, and things like that for the Iowa volunteer regiments that were being formed. He would be offered to become the colonel in the 4th Iowa Infantry Regiment. He would write, I go into this war on principle, which pecuniarily will ruin me. That was a word I've never heard before in my life. I had to look it up. He basically says, I am going on to going into this war in principle, but he understands it's probably going to ruin him financially. All right. Uh, while in training, Dodge was known to drill his men relentlessly. This was even before they even had uniforms, rifles, or anything like that. You kind of need those for training. training. Yeah. They, didn't, they didn't use those training anyway. <laughs> With, I mean, based on how some of the battles went in the Civil War, it kind of makes sense. Uh up until about World War One-ish, World War Two-ish, our government had a long-standing policy of not allowing arms training because it's wasting bullets, and bullets cost money. Look at that fine, that budgetary responsibility back in the 1800s. Yeah. I mean, the fact that we won so many wars with no arms training. It's, it, <laughs> but then they got to the war, and... And then, yeah, they didn't know what to do. So you're thinking... I once did the math. It's something like two, two, a two to three percent hit rate of actually them hitting something. Well, weren't the weapons also just very inaccurate? Not by the time of the Civil War, they were very accurate. Mm. They were accurate about six hundred yards, and they were firing at about a hundred, and they were still only hitting their targets two to three percent of the time. I was thinking of muskets. Never mind. Muskets were very inaccurate. Yeah. yeah. But by the time they're rifled, these are these are going to be rifled muskets. Yeah. All right. During this time, he's going to create what he calls his secret service. Uh, he had become disillusioned with his cavalry. So the, the main job of cavalry during the Civil War is scouting. They don't really fight. Horses are too expensive. You don't want to have to replace those. We always have this image of cavalry going into battle, waving their swords and just chopping things up and all that stuff. Um, one of my favorite Civil War historians, he said he basically compared Civil War sabers to giant butter knives. That they really were just there for show and they didn't really do anything. But anyway, cavalry is supposed to be the eyes of the army. And he is not liking what the cavalry is doing because the cavalry isn't giving him any reports. So he's, not, he's just out there in the blind. Um, so he is in Missouri at this time. And if you want a very confusing scenario, read about what's going on in Missouri early in the Civil War. They're technically independent. So they're neither Union or Confederate. But then... Pro-Southern forces are going to form their own private army. Pro-Northern forces are going to form their own private army. And just shenanigans starts happening. Eventually, they meet at a battle called Wilson's Creek. The pro-Union army is going to win, and they kind of take control of Missouri. All right, and that's where Dodge is at this point. Uh, he would discover that there's an independent Missouri Cavalry unit that was made up of locals that were willing to work for Dodge if the price is right. So they're mercenaries. Dodge secured funds and hired the men as scouts. The men would become one of the initial spy rings of the Civil War. In December of 1861, when he met another budding young luminary, Philip Sheridan, uh, who was a captain at this time, 
um, and this is going to be a lifelong friendship. Two shared a tent, and Dodge listened intently as little Phil, was his nickname, complained about untrained officers who refused to limit the size of their wagon trains or to help forage for supplies. And basically, that would slow them down. So what happened was you had your army that was moving. Behind the army was just a caravan of wagons and help supply that wagon. Sheridan is going to break the mold and he's going to go, you know what? I want to be lightning quick. So we're going to ditch the wagons and we're just going to forage for supplies. Uh, Dodge is going to decide to follow Sheridan's example with his own men. Prior to a major battle called the Battle of Pea Ridge, which is in Arkansas, Dodge's spies would prove instrumental in locating the Confederate Army and learning that it had split in two in order to attack the Union rear. Using this information, Dodge would have his men cut down trees to create obstructions on the road systems to slow down the Confederate advance. This would become known as the Bentonville Detour. The delay of the Confederates was instrumental in the Union winning the battle and giving them full control of Missouri for the remainder of the war. During the battle, Dodge would have three horses shot out from underneath him and suffer wounds to his side and hand, but he would continue fighting. Um, left behind in a house filled with Union wounded was Charles A. Baker, a hospital nurse. Um, when the Confederates got control of the hospital, he asked Baker, uh, Confederate General asked Baker for the identity of the man in the black coat who commanded the Federals. So I guess when um, Dodge got uniforms from the federal government, they gave them black ones. So they were very distinctive. There's only one other regiment I can think of that wears black. That's going to be the Iron Brigade, but I have a there. And all the fascists in Europe. Yes, as we talked about last week. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, the, the Confederate general was informed it was Colonel Dodge of the 4th Iowa. The Confederate general then replied, give my compliments to him and say to him that he has given me the best fight I have ever witnessed. Um, newspaper coverage of the victory quickly made Dodge a national hero. Um, and then from there, Dodge is going to get a new job within the Army. So while recovering from his wounds, Dodge would be promoted to Brigadier General. He'd begin working for Henry Halleck, Department of Missouri. Henry Halleck is like the brains behind the Emory, uh, the, the, the Army at this point. Uh, he wrote many books on military doctrine for West Point. Some are still used today. Uh, what they call him? I'm like old bubblehead or old like brains, something like that was his nickname. Civil War nicknames were just something else. Yes, like, they're just like old curly hair man. So, yeah. Um, there he meets up with Sheridan again. Dodge was assigned 8,000 men in order to repair the Mobile and Ohio Railroad that connected Corinth, Mississippi to Columbus, Ohio. So Corinth, Mississippi is a vital city within the South. It's a major railroad hub, and there's going to be a lot of fighting over the city. Uh, one of the biggest battles of Civil War, Shiloh, is basically Grant moving to take Corinth and then the Confederates trying to stop him. Um, well, he's basically told, we have Corinth, now we just got to repair all those rail lines um, connecting Columbus to Corinth. Uh, rail lines are extremely important during the Civil War. Uh, these armies have gotten so big that if you look at most battles, they're around rail lines because they need those rail lines as, as a supply line. Um, here, Dodge is going to create his Pioneer Corps, which is made up primarily of uh, runaway slaves or freed slaves from the South to help rebuild the railroads. A rivalry would soon begin, though, between Confederate General Nathaniel Bedford Forrest and Dodge. Uh, Forrest was a cavalry officer. Um, 
who was known for doing daring raids, destroying railroads, bridges, anything used by the North, just capturing people, all that stuff. Um, and then he's going to be the founder of the KKK after the war. And supposedly it was Forrest Gump's great, great grandpa or something. Wow. Yeah, I've seen Forrest Gump. That's okay. Yes. Dodge, however, was able to keep Forrest in check on the Mobile, Mobile and Ohio lines. Dodge built two-story blockhouses along the lines, bridges, and rail stations. Each would have 100 men assigned to it. That would be about a company. These men could fend off Forrest long enough for reinforcements to arrive. Grant was so impressed by Dodge's new approach that upon becoming commander of West Tennessee, he ordered all bridges and stations along the region's railroads fortified in this manner. Um, and, and you'll even see, like, even D.C., those rail lines are going are to take on a, a similar defense thing. So when Colonel John Rollins, Grant's chief of staff, recommended that Grant and Dodge meet so his commander could have an opportunity to test the Iowans, basically his resolve, all that stuff, Grant agreed. Dodge showed up for the meeting in Jackson, Tennessee, still dressed in old pants, stuffed inside his muddy boots, wearing basically a common soldier's shirt, and he had a sagging, dirty, nasty hat. Worried about his appearance, Dodge would be reassured by Rollins, never mind about the clothes. We all know about you. Dodge later admitted he felt better once he saw Grant's own uniform. Grant was known throughout the Civil War. The he, style wasn't his thing. He just wore what was available to him. All right. So during the meeting, Grant would give Dodge control of the Army of Tennessee's 2nd Division and tell him to ramp up his secret service system in order to determine the strength of the Confederates. A lot of his spies were illiterate. Dodge would use different methods to train them. His agents would be told to memorize key information and had to make sure they could provide accurate troop, troop counts of those traveling either on foot or by train. Um, knowing that his spy, if his spies were caught, they'd be hung, he advised them to be as straightforward as possible and not play dumb on Union forces in order to give the impression that they were just regular uh, civilians. So basically said, if you have to tell them some information about the Union Army, go for it. You're more valuable continuing to be a spy and them not knowing that we have spies. That, that's what's going to make this thing work. Dodge was determined to get as accurate information as possible. He'd interview refugees and escaped slaves. He'd read Southern newspapers. He had POWs interrogated. He even developed a method for his own men to cross-examine prisoners. Once he felt the information was accurate, he would then relay it to Grant. Only he knew who his spies were, and he kept that information to himself. Agents were to communicate with the Dodge only indirectly. They were to carry Confederate money, gold, and goods to help bribe and barter behind the lines. At times, some even joined a Confederate army or pretended to be Confederate spies themselves. So you got like the first double agents in history going on here. Female spies were um, extremely valuable assets in towns where Confederates were known to be posted as well. We have um, an episode on that. Yes. Listen to it. If you want to learn more about female spies of the Civil War, listen to our episode, Female yes. Spies of the Civil War. You know, we've gone, done a lot of episodes when we start having this, yeah. these correlations here. Uh, knowing that his operation was costing a lot of money, he needed to find a way to obtain more funds. Dodge realized he could get the money by selling contraband cotton, which was actually quite a common practice amongst officers during the Civil War, like Benjamin Butler. Go listen to our Benjamin Butler episodes. He made lots of money basically selling contraband cotton. That's what they did. They captured it, and then they sold it to make money and line their own pockets. He's going to raise over $17,000 for aspiring. It was believed, though, he was pocketing the money himself, just like everybody else. 
the Treasury Department after war would even ask him for the funds. And he responded, forward the demand to the War Department, like no one knew about the spiring. With rumors circulating that Dodge was a war profiteer, Grant told him just to grin it and bear it. So from 1862 to 1863, Dodge would defend Grant's flank, chase forest, repair railroad lines, and destroyed one of the major breadbaskets of the Confederacy, the Tennessee Valley. At one point, he'd write about how he had a two-mile line of freed slaves following him. He's going to give them a home at a deserted plantation, leave a chaplain in charge, and it's going to become one of the most successful um, kind of organizations in helping newly freed slaves. Although he wanted a field action, Dodge knew that Grant wanted him to protect those vital railroad junctions, especially in Corinth. He'd say, he left me there because he knew I would stay, which was an indication to me that he expected me to stay no matter what force came to me. By the summer of 1863, Dodge's health became a concern, um, primarily because he had lost so much weight. He was down to 120 pounds. That's not a lot. That's not a lot for a grown man. Yeah. Uh, so when General Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee pinned the Union Army down in Chattanooga after the Battle of Chickamauga, Sherman ordered Dodge's division up the Tennessee River Valley to assist. It was Dodge's assignment to repair and guard rail lines and roads between Nashville and Decatur, Alabama, needed by Grant to supply thousands of federal troops. Dodge did not disappoint. Grant would then call on Dodge, or would call Dodge a most capable of soldier and said, he had no tools to work with except those of the pioneers, axes, pixes, and spades. Uh, with these, he was able to entrench his men, protect them against surprise by small parties of the enemy. Without having access to a dependable supply base, Dodge had his men forage for grain and cattle, and he had millers and blacksmiths within the ranks use local mills and shops to grind flour and cornmeal and make the tools he needed to repair railroads and bridges. All in all, he's going to build 182 bridges and repair over 102 miles of railroad. That's impressive. He was, he was really using Sherman's philosophy of living off the land, not, not slowing yourself down by just carrying all the supplies. Um, so Atlanta is where he is going to be involved next. Um, in March 1864, Grant was promoted lieutenant general and made Union Army general in chief. Sherman's going to take control of the military division of Mississippi and Major General James B. McPherson assumed command of the Army of Tennessee. Um, all Union armies were named after rivers. It's easy to remember that way. Army of the Cumberland, Army of the Tennessee, Army, Army of, of the, the Potomac. Army of the Potomac, yep. Um, so what happens is Grant gets promoted. He's put in charge of the entire army. This is a, another, a lot of people get this wrong, is most people think he gets promoted to take over the Army of the Potomac. He just goes east. Meade is still in charge of the Army of the Potomac. He just has Grant overlooking his shoulder now. But Grant's in control of the whole... Like everyone. Everything. Yeah, yeah. he's in control of the whole show. Um, so this also meant a return to the front for Dodge, whom Grant advised Sherman is too valuable an officer to be anywhere except at the front and one you can rely upon um, in any and every emergency. Sherman was content to keep Dodge with him, giving him command of the 16th Corps. On July of 1864, Dodge was asked to build a double trestle bridge over the Chattahoochee River near Roswell, Georgia. Using materials secured from three destroyed factories, he would build the bridge in two days. Chattahoochee River is a big river. Yeah, it's pretty wide. It is pretty wide. It's pretty impressive to build a bridge that big in two days. 
Uh, Dodge, however, was almost involved in an international crisis as one of the factories he seized uh, basically materials from was flying a French flag. The owner protested Dodge taking the materials. Sherman's advice for him, I know you have a big job, but that is nothing new for you. Um, I know the bridge at Roswell is important so that you may destroy all Georgia to make it good and strong. Sherman don't care. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't really care. Um, as the Atlanta campaign progressed, Dodge would be put in charge of destroying the railroad, railroad lines throughout Georgia, prim primarily those of the Western and Atlantic. Dodge's men created what were called Sherman neckties. Uh, they would remove rails, stack up the wooden ties beneath them, set them on fire to where the rails got superheated. Once they were superheated, they would twist them to all sorts of contortions, sometimes even doing it doing it around trees so they could never be used again by the Confederates. That's that's a pretty good idea. That like, is. You know, just... Destroy everything so yeah. we can't use it anymore. I mean, I think maybe Dodge felt bad because, you know, he just fixed like 102 miles of railroad and now he has to destroy a ton of them. Um, probably, but um, Sherman is much like Sheridan. So as... This is basically occurring on Sherman's March to the Sea. Sherman's not going to bring anything with him. So those rail lines are of no yeah. importance to him. He's, I think his line is like a million people live off this land. 50,000 should be able to do it easily. And, and that's, that's one of the, the great strategies of his March to the Sea is the Confederates have no clue where he's going. And he's, he's able to go wherever he wants because he's not tied down to a specific supply line. Yeah. Um, as the Atlanta campaign progressed, Confederate General Joseph Johnson was going to be replaced by the more aggressive General Bell Hood, John Bell Hood. If you don't know about John Bell Hood, super, super aggressive, considered to be one of the most aggressive generals in the Civil War, probably one of the better generals the Confederate had, but he, Confederacy had, but he is just, I'm attacking, I'm attacking, I'm attacking. That's, that's his thing. And at this point, he's, I think he's, he, he doesn't have use of an arm and a leg so they have to tie him to the horse so he doesn't fall off. All right. How does he control where the horse goes? Then? I have no idea. But yeah, he, he he hurt. He like lost use of his arm at Gettysburg, and then I want to say at Chickamauga, he gets shot in the leg and uses loose uh, use of that. I don't remember if they're both on the same side or not. Maybe that can help. Maybe counterbalance. Yeah. Um. Dodge's spy ring quickly informed him, and uh, in turn, he informed Sherman. This is vital information because Union generals who knew Hood from their West Point days knew of his aggressiveness and knew he was going to attack. With this information, the Union Army was able to hold off Hood's attack at Peachtree Creek the next day. So within 24 hours, Hood was attacking. So that information was extremely vital. It allowed him to go from an offensive army to a defensive army, make that, that, that shift. Over the next couple of days, Hood would continue to attacks, in which would become known as the Battle of Atlanta. With only 5,000 men, Dodge was able to force back attacks of about 15,000 men. Dodge would say, I said in all my experience in life, until the two forces struck and the 16th Corps stood firm, I never passed more anxious moments. In meeting with Sherman to report on the battle, Dodge wrote, he seemed rather surprised to see me, but greeted me cordially and spoke of the loss of James McPherson. I stated to him um, my errand. He turned upon me and said, Dodge, you whipped them today, didn't you? I said, yes, sir. Then he said, can't you do it again tomorrow? I said, yes, sir. Bade him good night and went back to my command, determined never to go upon another such errand. 
On August 18th, Sherman ordered Dodge to feel the enemy's front. While in the trench, manned by the 7th Iowa Infantry, Dodge was cautioned not to lift his head over the trench. Instead, shown an observation peephole they had made. But, as Dodge recalled, the moment he put his eye to the hole, a rebel shot me in the head. It was a significant wound, but fortunately for him, not mortal. Um, doctor is going to say Dodge isn't going to die. He is coming too. Sherman declared anxiously after asking him his own, uh, asking his own medical director to examine the wounded Dodge. Dodge was left blind for several days because of his wound. He'd be moved to a train, lucky him, to get moved north for more medical attention. And they put him on a hammock and he swayed with the motions of the train. So he's probably right at home. A nurse examined his wound and gave him food, uh, gave him food and he would share it with the other wounded in the train. A few of those soldiers recounted feeling lucky to have been in the same car as a general, knowing it meant they would likely get more attention and more to eat. All the way they endeavored to help me, Dodge would say, I was absolutely helpless. In October, Grant invited Dodge to his headquarters in Virginia. Before heading back to Iowa, Lincoln's going to call a meeting with Dodge, and he wants, his, he wants Dodge's opinion on Grant. Overland campaign, which is basically Grant's campaign to destroy Lee in Virginia, is not going really well. Lots of guys die, and Lincoln is starting to lose patience with this. Um, but uh, Dodge is going to reassure him, Grant's the guy, stick with him, he's going to win this thing. Lincoln takes Dodge's word extremely important, and, and he stays with Grant. And he ends up winning this And thing. he ends up winning. Yeah. That right there is a very important moment in probably the Civil War's history. Yeah, right? if he said, no, Grant is not your guy, go back to McClellan, then we would have lost. Burnside. <laughs> All right, so the Civil War came to Ned. Dodge was sent out west to deal with growing tensions between Native Americans and settlers. December of 1865, he came across 300 supposed hostile warriors at Cheyenne Pass in present-day Wyoming. When he followed them, he would soon, soon discover a uh, descent on the plain below and in, and in turn find a passing for the pending Union Pacific Railway. Ooh, he's, he's back at it. Dodge would leave the Army in January of 1866, was offered a job as chief engineer of the Union Pacific. Um, Grant and I think Sherman vouch for him. So when you got those big wigs basically as your uh, recommendations, then they're going to accept you're, you're you. Pretty, yeah. You're pretty set. He was told he would have absolutely con absolute control over it and agreed. Dodge's job was to plan the route and devise solutions to any obstacles encountered in the Transcontinental Railway. Uh, Dodge had been hired by Herbert M. Hub Hoxie, a former Lincoln employee and winner of a contract to build the first 250 miles of the Union Pacific. Hoxie assigned the contract to investor Thomas C. Durant, who was later prosecuted for attempts to manipulate the route to suit his land holdings. So this guy like had some land and he's like, you know what? If we just move the line about 200 miles east, it'll hit my land. And I can make some money. Um, <clears throat> this brought him into vicious conflict with Dodge and Hoxie. Eventually Durant imposed a consulting engineer named Silas Seymour to spy and interfere with Dodge's decisions. Seeing that Durant was making a fortune, Dodge bought shares in Durant's company, Credit Mobiler, which was the main contractor on the project. He made a substantial profit, but when the scandal of Durant's dealings emerged, Dodge removed himself to Texas to avoid testifying um, within the trial. Can't find me. I can't testify. Yeah. Uh, he would help complete the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869. 
Uh, he'd be the head of seven railroads and nine construction companies and an advisor to various presidents. Uh, he is going to enjoy fabulous wealth after the war. He's going to serve one term in the House of Representatives, but he doesn't do very good at his job because he's always away working on the railroads and he's never in D.C. to make much of a difference. Uh, he was touched by a scandal during Grant's administration. Grant's administration was filled with it because a friend, he was a friend of Jay Gould, who was a speculator, was doing some shady business dealings. Um, but he's going to be, remain respected and he's not going to be really tied to it. Uh, he would lead fundraising efforts for memorials to Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan, as well as uh, um, Oliver Howard. And after Grant died in July 1885, he led the seven mile funeral procession for the former commander and president through New York City. Dodge remained a friend to Grant's widow, Julia, and children and helped them financially as he would for many widows and children of former generals, spies, and fourth Iowa veterans who had fallen on hard times. Dodge was appointed to a head uh, commission investigating the conduct of the army during the Spanish-American War, become known as the Dodge Commission. Uh, traveled to several cities in Dodge's personal railroad car. Um, they report a, uh, they published a report to Senate, um, basically how did the army operate? What did we do well? What did we do bad? Saying the war didn't last that long, I guess it couldn't have been very long. Yeah. Only four months. So Listen yeah. to our Spanish-American War episodes if you want to learn more about those. I forgot we had We have episode. one, yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I was on that one. <laughs> During a 1902 event at West Point, Theodore Roosevelt gave Dodge an astonishing tribute. I'm going to say something that uh, to you that it will be hard for you to believe, but it comes from my heart. I would rather have had your experience in the Civil War and have seen what you have seen and done to then to be the president of the United States. No faint praise indeed. In 1916, he's going to return home to Iowa, and there he will die. His house is now a museum. It's still standing. Um, but anyway, this is a man that most, like I said, most people have never heard about. But without him, Grant's not getting intelligence. Grant's not getting supplies. Transcontinental Railroad wouldn't be a thing. Wouldn't probably. be a thing, probably. All right. So it's a pretty important dude in history. Yeah. yeah. We Grenville. probably would have lost without him. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. It's, it's up there. Oh, also Grant kept his job because of him. Old Grenville. Come on, name my next dog, Grenville. <laughs> I feel like, isn't that a city in South Carolina? Green, I always said it was Greenville. Well, it is Greenville, but Greenville. They may pronounce it Greenville. I don't know. Greenville just sounds a lot like Greenville. So maybe his family was from South Carolina. They pronounce Lafayette, Lafayette. <laughs> so who knows? Yeah. It's like us in Georgia, how they pronounce Albany, Albany, or Houston, Houston. I've never met anyone who pronounces it like that. That's, but... that's how it's pronounced. Houston County is Houston County, and Albany, Georgia is Albany. Albany. Do they pronounce Albany, New York the same way? No. Oh, well. <laughs> Not here there. Thank you for listening. <laughs>Thank you for tuning in to History Class After Hours, the show where we talk about the things your history teachers didn't have time to teach you. If you wanted to stay updated on upcoming events for the History Club, please visit 
www.starsmillhistoryc.wixsite.com forward slash 2020. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends and subscribe to our channel on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Be on the lookout for new episodes, and we'll be posting every week. Until next time, stay curious.